Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic. Also, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find out a whole bunch of information there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Lionel Friedberg, and he is a director, producer author and probably a bunch of other things also <laughs> and he's done a lot with the history channel and travel channel and uh definitely got some really interesting topics to talk about thank you for coming on today hey gary thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here yeah and you also have a book out recently on african shamanism right yeah, it's uh, the book is called Forever in My Veins, and the title refers to the fact that I was born in in South Africa, in Africa, and the the um, although I've lived in the U.S. now for nearly forty years, um, Africa still is very much defines who I am, um, and um, I had encountered amazing experiences back in Africa. I made a number documentaries there before I came out here with tribal people and um, I looked deeply into African shamanism and it was an extraordinary fascinating experience and I can I can go back and tell you how all that began but it's about you know the the spirit of Africa very much pretty much defines who I am now, I've made movies with you name it with you know NASA and the National Academy of Sciences and all sorts of uh, wonderful institutions and organizations here in the states and I don't know ton of shows history channel and all the rest of it but i i I kept returning back to the shaman background um because uh it's the through line of the book it it it, it's what connects all these stories together and um we can go into details into into how it all works but anyway yeah so the book is called forever in my veins and um i'm happy to take your listeners on this journey with me and i think that uh and one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I needed to share these experiences. They were quite extraordinary. And I think people will find as they read this, um, it's really more of a memoir, if you like, um, than anything else, uh, because I've been a filmmaker for over 50 years. And there's a lot of stories that I tell, you know, uh, the shows that I worked on. But the through line, the connecting, the glue that holds everything together is the, the, the shaman background. And anyway, you know, we can we can we can talk about that. I would love to hear about it. Start from the beginning. Well, you know, as a as a kid, I grew up in a small town not far from Johannesburg, and it was during the days of apartheid, uh, the, the racial segregation in South Africa, which wasn't just uh, practiced by society; it was the official law of the land. People were divided very very strictly on on ethnic grounds, white and black 
the twain never met. And it was a strict division right down the middle of society. It was pretty iniquitous. And you know, a lot of young people today aren't really aware of the fact that that this system existed. Um, a lot of people have said to me, well, what is this thing called apartheid? You know, they know about Nelson Mandela, who was one of the liberators of, of the country from, uh, uh, from, from that system back in the 90s after he was released from prison as a political prisoner. Um, but it was the, that's the way life existed in South Africa. And that's the system in which I grew up. Now, I was an only child. And um, so we were living in the small town. It's only about 20 miles east of Johannesburg. Uh, today, the big international airport is is there, uh, Oliver Tambo International. Uh, but those days, it was a small town, and I was an only kid. And my folks had a um, a business in, in in town. My father was an immigrant from Latvia. He came to he came to Africa in his. I think in the twenties with his brother from, from Latvia, trying try to escape Stalin and all of that stuff. And um, my mother was South African, but I was an only child. And so they had this business. And as I grew up, you know, I was exposed to this racist system, even though we had black servants at home and I had a black nanny. If you walk down the street, I often saw, you know, a, a, a police uh, van arriving, screeching to a halt next to a, a black woman or a black guy walking along the streets and demanding to see their papers. And, bec- and the reason for that was that these folks had to have a permit, permission, an official permit that was, it was like a document that they had to carry all the time. If they didn't have permission, and it had to be renewed every year, if they didn't have permission to be in certain places, they'd be arrested immediately on the spot. Mm-hmm. And either the employee uh, would have to bail them out, or uh, if no one came to take them out of prison and bail them out, they would be sent back to their tribal area. Now, there are many, many tribes in South Africa, and there are many diverse languages and cultures and black societies, and each of them have their own traditions and customs and histories, of course. And it's absolutely fascinating. In fact, today, there are really, in South Africa, there are 11 official languages, which gives you some idea of how diverse these tri- tribal groups are, although 99.99% of the population speak English, English only. Uh, anyway, um, and so I, I grew up with this nanny, uh, many nannies, you know, taking care of me as a, as a single child. And it must have been during my, my, my year in, in first grade, I think. It must have been about that because I was, I was really young. I was maybe six years old. And my folks were, uh, had their business. And one day my nanny said to me, it was her day off. But, you know, she was taking care of me and she said, you want to come with me? I'm going to visit a friend today. And I said, you know, to her, yeah, sure. You know, if that's what you're going to do, I'll come along with you. And um, so we walked down the road to uh, a friend of hers who worked also as a domestic servant in another house just down the street. And she, just like our nanny, lived way back in the backyard of this, this house where she worked in a little tiny room. There was nothing there. It was very sparse. Uh, one window, a tiny little bathroom, only cold water, no electricity. We, of course, had everything. We had hot and cold water. We had electricity and all the rest. So that, they didn't. And it was pretty tough on those guys. It was really brutal. Um, and um, so we went down to see her friend. And I loved this nanny of mine, as I did all of those wonderful um, black servants that we had working for us over the years. 
And when we got to her friend's little room in the backyard, you know, I saw a couple of other people waiting outside the room of where this woman lived. And I said to my nanny, I said, um, are they also your friends? And she said, no, no, I don't know who they are. They are here to see her um, about medicine. And I thought, you know, what is, what, what's she talking about? What about medicine? And she's, I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, because my friend is also a Sangoma. Now, Sangoma is a Zulu word that means a healer, a, a person who is able to foretell the future, someone who can dispense medicine, usually herbal stuff that is ground up and dispensed for various uh, ailments and complaints, things from not only physical illness, but mm -hmm. things like bad dreams, or let's say you've lost something. This person, this Sangama, was, wore many hats and had many capabilities and was trained in a way to help their clients, their patients, if you like, in many, many aspects of life. And so as my nanny explained all this, you know, it's, none of it made sense to me because I thought, well, if she's, if she's a doctor, as my nanny would say, I mean, it didn't make much. The only doctor I knew had a stethoscope around his neck and wore a white coat, you know. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so what is she referring to? Anyway, my nanny said, come, let's go inside. And we waited for these two people to go into her room. And they were there for maybe 10 minutes. And then they came out carrying a little paper bag. And there was something in the paper bag. And they looked pleased with themselves and they left. And then the door opened and this woman asked us in. She said, ah, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on in. And so we went inside the room. And for me, it was like going into some kind of exotic world, particularly as a child, because I didn't recognize any of the, the smells that I was smelling. There were odors and smells in this room that I couldn't possibly identify. And along the walls, all around her room were these shelves with various containers, clay jars, glass bottles, little tins and all sorts of things, containing herbs, feathers, skins, pieces of, of dried up animals, um, um, uh, uh, pebbles, all sorts of weird things that I couldn't identify at all. And I said to her, what are all these things? And she said, yeah, because I am a Sangoma. These are my medicines. I use these for people who come to see me when they have something wrong. And I said, well, can you explain that? You know, and she said, sure, sit down on the floor. And, you know, she had like one chair and a bed. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the bed was on bricks. There were the three bricks placed under each foot of the bed to raise the bed higher than the floor. And I said to her, because my nanny did the same thing. And I asked her, you also put your, your bed on bricks. Why do you do that? You know? And she said, ah, that's because of the tokolosh. And I said, what's the, you know, what is the tokolosh? And she said, that's the little devil that comes around. He's a very, very nasty. He's an evil demon. And the only way we can be safe is to raise our beds at night to be safe from him because he's very short, very hairy, got long teeth and horns. And, you know, he's, he, he goes out catching people and uh, he's very evil. So that's why we all put our beds so high so we are safe, higher off the floor, taller than him. And I, you know, I was intrigued by all of this. None of this really made sense. It was like straight out of a movie. But anyway, yeah. then she said to me, let me show you what I do. And she asked me to sit down on the, this, on the floor. Uh, there was no furniture to sit on anyway. And there was a grass mat on the floor. And on this grass mat was a little animal skin bag. And she said, you shake that. 
and I took it and I shook it and I heard clink, 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 you know, as though there were either coins or something tinkling inside there. And she said, those are my tools. I do not use the same instruments that most people that you are used to. I use this bag. These are my tools. And I turn it upside down and I turned it upside down. And what spilled out onto the onto this mat, that's a grass mat, were a bunch of little tiny bones, the size of chicken bones, small bones, and all sorts of other little trinkets like bottle tops, dice, little bits of polished glass, all sorts of weird objects that made up her bone tool kit. Mm-hmm. Now, later on, in, in, in as I grew up, of course, and when I became a filmmaker, I realized that all Sangomas have a bone kit. And in the, in the standard kit, there have to be certain items. In every single Sangomas kit, there has to be a bone, a small bone from a crocodile and a goat. Uh, there are certain antelopes that have to be in there. There's got to be a bone from a lion. And there has to be a bone from a hyena. And they all serve specific functions. Anyway, so she said to me, you see the way the bones have fallen on the floor? And I said, yeah, I see that. And she said, your ancestors made them fall the way they have fallen on the grass mat. And now I can read what they are telling me. And I thought, wow, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, we didn't go into detail. That was the sum total of it. It was weird. It was like out of some kind of strange, you know, story that one had read. But anyway, and the rest of the day was spent or the rest of the afternoon she was spent yakking with my, with her friend, my nanny. And, you know, I was just playing with these little bones and stones on the, on the, on this grass mat. And eventually we left and, you know, I forgot about that. Uh, but it was intriguing. Now it, I, I, I told my folks about that. And of course they dismissed it immediately. And they said, Oh, you know, that's all nonsense. Because it's as though every white person or every adult knew that there were certain black people in the neighborhood who practiced as a Sangoma. And of course, for whites, that was like being a witch doctor. Mm-hmm. It was dismissed immediately as, as just garbage. And and so I forgot about it. And um, now we jump ahead uh, many, many years. The year is now 1960. I finished high school. And um, my father decided to leave the, the country and take a job very much to the, to the north of South Africa in a place what was then called northern rhodesia northern rhodesia today is the republic of zambia and it sits slap bang in the middle of central africa right on the border of the congo and the reason why he took that job was a he had a bunch of really bad business partners he really didn't have a very good uh um, track record of of you know being able to um make make a decent living and he also found the racist system particularly aggravating he couldn't live with that he was from northern europe Mm-hmm. And when he encountered all of this and he said, you know, how can this be a, the official policy of this land? It's it's wrong. And, you know, I, I, I can't deal with this anymore. And my mother agreed with him. So he took a job in northern Rhodesia. There was an ad one day in the Sunday papers uh, advertising for a manager of a tiny little jewelry store. My dad, by the way, was trained as a watchmaker in the good old days when watches were mechanical, <laughs> you know, little springs and cogs and stuff. And so uh, that's what he did. And he took this job in this little tiny store in a small town in a copper mining district of northern Rhodesia, right up against the Congo border. Now, the Congo had just been given its independence by Belgium. People may not recall this, but Belgium was originally called the Belgian Congo. 
it was a Belgian territory. And when Belgium gave up its colony and allowed the Congo to become independent, civil war broke out immediately between various factions. I won't go into the details of that. The, the war is still kind of going on today mm -hmm. in various forms. So the Congo was in chaos, but just south of the border in northern Rhodesia, things are quiet and peaceful and very nice because northern Rhodesia was a British territory. It was a colony of Britain. And so it was a safe place to go. So my dad said, let's take our chances. Let's go up there and let's see what it's like. Um, and we did. Um, and, you know, my mother said, why don't you stay back in South Africa and go and get yourself a, a degree at, at a university? Why do you want to come with us to this, you know, unknown little town in the copper mining district? But I have had always wanted to make movies all my life. And I started making movies when I was 11 years old as a kid. I used to make films about my friends' birthday parties and sporting events at school and whatever else. And when they went up to the cent to Central Africa, I thought, what a great opportunity. I have this little 8mm movie camera, whereas those are the days of film, not video. And I thought, I can make films about tribes and about King Solomon's mines and the African Queen and Tarzan and all that wonderful stuff. I mean, how naive can you be? You know, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But that was my dream to do that. And so I said, no, I'm coming with you guys. And I went up there. And when I got up there, I was horrified because there was nothing for me to do. You know, there was this little tiny town and, and smaller towns around it uh, and these copper mines. And that was it. The rest of it was just jungle from horizon to horizon. And I thought, you know, what have I done? I, I probably will have to go back to South Africa, you know. And maybe my mother's right. Maybe I should go and get an education and go to university or college or something. But I persevered for the first few months. I used to, I got myself a little um, used car, a little VW Beetle. And I would drive around and I'd take my little movie camera into the boondocks with, uh, we had a very nice servant who worked for us up there. And he would be my translator. And I'd go and make films about these people living in the boondocks and living in these villages. And then one day, like manna from heaven, uh, I read in the paper, there's a local rag that served this, this community of mining towns, which announced the opening of the, of the first, the first television service in Central Africa. They built a television station in this, one of the main towns of this copper mining district. And I thought, my God, that's for me. I've got to get a job there. And I went and I knocked on the door and I pleaded and I begged and I, you know, said, I don't care what it is. I'll pay you. You got to give me a job. <laughs> and they did. So I got this amazing job in the props department, taking care of, 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 of props, you know, uh, that were used in live shows. But that didn't last long because one day I said to the, to the studio manager, I said, can I show you some of my home movies? And he said, sure, bring him in. And I did. And he said, that's good stuff. And I said, yeah. So the reason I want you to see that is please put me behind the camera. And fortunately, he was uh, he was open to the idea. And he said, right, we'll give you a tryout. You can work on one of the live afternoon shows. We, we did a lot of live shows in the afternoons with tribal groups who would come in doing tribal dances and music. Mm -hmm. It was amazing, you know. And at night, we'd have Leave it to Beaver and Bonanza and all that for the white audiences. But during the day, we'd have tribal shows. Uh, they were amazing days. And um, and so he put me behind the camera, and I was good because I, I did know about how to get a shot quickly. And I was young, and I was aggressive, and I was uh, very, very uh, keen 
to impress folks. And I, 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 you know, I, um, I was good. So he said, all right, we'll give you a permanent job. You can become a studio cameraman. And that was the beginning of my career. So everything was fine and dandy for the first three years or so, uh, three or four years. And then in 1964, Britain was giving up all its overseas colonies. You know, the first one, of course, as everyone may or may not remember, was was India back in 1947 when Mahatma mm-hmm. Gandhi fought for independence. But the African territories didn't get their independence from Britain until the 60s. And, you know, there were a ton of countries in Africa that were British, from Ghana and Nigeria to northern Rhodesia, which is where I was living at the time. And so Britain was giving away um, these colonies and they were they were getting their independence. And when northern Rhodesia got its independence, the new uh, government that was formed, which was a black government, they nationalized the station immediately. It was privately owned. They immediately nationalized the station. And we totally understood that we all of us. And there were only about 30, 40 people working at the station and all of us white. We, we understood this, you know, these folks had now got their mm-hmm. independence, now their country. And so they took over the station and we all got pink slips. In other words, thanks a lot. You've done a great job, but we no longer need you, your services. Your jobs are going to be taken over by local people. And we understood that. So most of the people, they were fine because they would go back. They could go back to where they originally came from, usually from England, um, but where would I go? And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do with my life now? You know, I'm, in three months' time, I have to find myself another job. The, 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 the notice we got was three months. And so I, we had a great servant working for us at home by the name of David Firi. David was a member of the Bemba ethnic group, uh, which is one of the largest uh, tribal groups in, in Zambia, northern Rhodesia, Zambia, at the time. And he, was, he's not, he wasn't much older than I was, by the way. And he worked for us, you know, he'd help in the kitchen, mow the lawn, do the usual stuff that black folks did for white folks those back in those days. And he and I were pretty close buddies. We, we, we used to spend time together. And he often used to come with me in my little car into the, into the bush uh, to go and photograph stuff, go and photograph the villages and things. And I said to him, David, a terrible thing's happened. I've been fired. And he couldn't believe it. He said, why? And I said, well, because my job's been, been taken over, is going to be taken over by one of you guys by a, a black man and um, I have to leave and I don't know what to do. What am I going to do with my life? I was really worried. And he said to me, don't worry. Um, I will find someone to give you some advice. Well, what on earth could this guy, you know, offer me or one of his friends? This was, um, you know, we were, we were in a, we were in the middle of middle of the jungle. Um, who was he? Who did he have in mind? Anyway, I trusted him implicitly because, you know, he was a, he was, he was an, was an honest, wonderful guy. And he said on whatever day it was, Thursday or something, he said, we go on Thursday, we'll go into the bush. I know someone who's going to help you. And so comes the day of the race. And there we are in my little, my little beat up VW Beetle on a bumpy dirt road. And we went to this tiny settlement. And at the end, end of the settlement was a single house little virtually a, a tiny little hut and he said this is the place this is the place he had a piece of paper with instructions how to get there i had no idea where we were going i had no idea who we were going to see and he knocked on the door and this ancient little tiny bent over old lady uh arrived and opened the door 
and she beckoned us in. She spoke no English. She spoke only Bemba. So thank goodness for David because he could translate. And we, she invited us into her little hut. There were basically two rooms. There was a front room and a rear, a back room. And in the front room, the minute I went in there, I recognized those smells that I had experienced as a kid way back in South Africa as a child. I smelt those same strange pungent odors of various herbs and grasses and bulbs and roots and things. They were in little containers all over in shelves around her room. And in the middle of this room was a grass mat. And on the grass mat was a little leather bag, obviously her bones. And I thought, my goodness, this woman is must be a Sangoma. Well, they don't call them Sangomas in Zambia. They call them Nangas. But anyway, that's exactly who she was. And, you know, David, in his wisdom, uh, you know, our, our, our servant, this friend of mine, he felt that she could foretell the future and tell me what to do with my life. So we sat down and, you know, it was the most extraordinary experience. I, there's no way that I can adequately describe it. I do go into great detail in the book. And I think people will find it absolutely fascinating as to what happened because she sat down there and she, she was half blind. I mean, she was really very old, this woman. She sat down and she said to me, pick up the bag, you know, in Bembo, David was translating blow into it, which is what I did, and then say your name, which is what I did, and then turn the bag upside down, which is what I did, and the bones fell onto these grass mat. And she leaned over and she looked down at these bones and suddenly she pulled back and she covered her eyes and she said, oh, she said to David, she said, I can't see anything. I can't see anything. David said, she can't see anything. And then she babbled something and David said, she wants to know what all these bright lights are that are shining in her face. And I thought, what? What this woman was obviously seeing were the lights in the television station, which is where I was working. She didn't know that I worked there. She had no clue what I did. And the minute I heard that, that she was blinded by these lights, I thought, you better pay attention to what this little old lady has to say. She is for real. She has powers beyond your capacity to understand. Just sit back and listen to her. And that's exactly what I did for the next hour. It was a non-stop flow of information basically what she told me for the rest of our, our meeting which was like an hour and a half or whatever it was she foretold my entire life she told me things but she didn't understand she was seeing things in the way the bones had fallen now i think i should explain how this bone deal works the way the way they it has been described to me many many times because i've met many many sangomas since then is that the ancestors of the client or the patient influences the way the bones fall on the mat. And the Sangoma who reads these bones, it is that person's ancestors who explain what the pattern of bones mean. Like, for example, if a lion bone lies in a certain way, it means its strength or its dominance or you will overcome things. If it's upside down, it means the opposite. And mm -hmm. if a hyena bone crosses it, it means evil is coming your way and you better watch out because something is going to happen to you. Things like that. They can understand. They can read the bones in ways that you and I would never be able to understand uh, the, um, the, 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 um, the meaning of it. But they do because it's, 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 it's believed that the, your, that the ancestors of the client 
is making the bones fall in a certain way, and that the ancestors of the of the of the of the Sangoma is merely whispering in her ear and telling her what they mean. But but this woman was seeing things in these bones. Now this poor old woman probably in her entire life had never been more than 20 miles away from her her hut, her house. She'd lived there all her life. And Zambia is a landlocked country. There's no ocean there or anything. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the first things she said to me, and this is what I wanted to hear from her was, because you know, the reason why I went there was what I'm going to do with my, with my life. One of the first things she said to David is, you tell him that he is going to cross the big water and he's going to go to the north. She pointed to, she didn't say north, but she pointed in the direction of north. You know, she said, he's going to go that way. And he's going to go over the big, big water. She didn't say sea or ocean. She just said big water. And he will go to a place where he will do his work one day where there are more big lights than the ones I'm seeing now. And he will meet many famous people. And that's the work he's going to do. You know, so what she was foreseeing clearly was that I would go to LA and work in Hollywood, which is what I've done, mm-hmm. you know, for the last 36 years. But I mean, prior to that, I worked all, all over the world in, in other areas, but I've, I've been living in this city now for a long, long time. And, you know, um, I've done some wonderful stuff in this town. And that woman foresaw that way back in 1964. And you, she went on and on with all sorts of predictions. And I'll tell you every single thing that that woman predicted came true. Uh, first of all, I did go back to South Africa and work in the film industry for a while. And then I emigrated to North America. And those days you didn't travel by jet. You went by sea. Mm-hmm. It was cheaper and much more convenient. You know, jet travel wasn't the mass market that it is today. So she saw that happening. Um, but she also made many, many other predictions. She said I would be married twice. That's true. She said I would have four children. That came true. She said, I would have a certain number of grandchildren. That has all come true. Every single thing that that woman foretold has come to pass. It all came true. But she told me a lot of other very, very weird stuff. And some of it at the time when I heard it from her was absolutely terrifying. I had no idea what she was talking about. And I'll give you an example. One of the things she said to David, she she looked at the bones and she suddenly clapped her hands like this, which which in that tradition is like a form of protection, you know, <laughs> protect me from from evil. They they clapped their hands and she said, "You tell him that there will come a time in his work he's going to be in the bush, and he must be very very careful of the great beast because that great beast will almost take his life. He has to be very very careful." I thought. You know, when I heard that, I, I, she scared, scared the bejesus out of me. I didn't know what it meant. Um, and it was only when the event happened, which I can describe in a, in, in a, in a short while. I'll tell you exactly what she meant. Um, you know, I thought, what is she talking about? She's talking about a dragon. She's talking about what is it that she means, you know? And then she said many things to him. Another thing she said to David was, in his work one day, he's going to go to another world. There is no color in that world. It is a world where it is only white. White everywhere is just white, white, white. She clapped her hands again as so she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Now, she was obviously seeing all the stuff in the birds. I wasn't seeing it, but she sure was. She said, he's going to go to this land. There is no color, only white. I thought, what on earth is that? Another world, no color? She said to him, um, 
one day in the on the big water he's going to do another job on the big water and the water will also try to to kill him well that came true because in 19 in 1982 i was on a scientific research ship in the south atlantic and uh, we almost capsized at sea you know and that's like two decades after she predicted it how did she know these things how could she foresee these things another thing she said to david was oh she said um he is going to meet a man one day who was very close to the most evil man who ever lived and when i heard that i thought what on earth is she saying am am i going to meet an ex murderer am i going to meet you know uh who is who what is she talking about I tried to make as many notes as I could about that meeting and I sort of filed them away but over time they got lost but they were impregnated in my mind in my brain. Mm-hmm. I could never forget some of these predictions. And as these as my career unfolded and these events started to happen I realized when they were happening what this what this woman had meant. You know the, the white world that she predicted was Back in 1990 I did a show for PBS. There was a terrific science series on PBS called The Infinite Voyage. And uh and what I did was I went down to Antarctica to do a movie about uh climate change. We did it we made the show in in conjunction with the National Academy of Sciences in Washington DC and we had a bunch of scientists on board the ship and we went down to Antarctica to investigate is climate change real? The ozone hole had only recently been discovered by a guy by the name of Sherry Rowland. Uh he and his uh, colleague had discovered the ozone hole over Antarctica and also the, the 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 there was a prediction that world temperatures were definitely going to go up because of the increase of carbon dioxide and and um and methane in the atmosphere and where do you go to measure these things if you want to take the temperature of planet earth and find out about her state of health you know don't 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 do it in an urban area don't do it where there are large population mm-hmm. groups go to a pristine place which is far away from large uh, uh human populations and the best place to do that of course is antarctica and so you know we were on this research ship diving under the oceans looking at krill populations are krill being affected by acidity in the oceans are the oceans changing is the atmosphere changing is carbon dioxide going up they were drilling ice cores into the ice and taking out these ice cores and in these ice cores are bubbles and these bubbles are built up over a period of centuries and as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the ice and into all these little air bubbles you can see that CO2 gets less and less so the higher you go in the level of the ice the higher the CO2 goes you realize that the CO2 is being trapped in the ice and it's getting more intense you know so this is the way one does science and this is what the show was all about it was absolutely fascinating and it was christmas 1990 we were in the middle of uh the ocean but the ocean was covered with pack ice there was ice from horizon to horizon and the captain it was a, a danish captain the, char- the the ship had been chartered by by the united states government and uh it was a danish crew and anyway the captain stopped the ship that night and uh and, and, and night is not the right word because we were so far south uh towards the, the south pole that the sun never set you know it only went down to the horizon and then almost immediately came up again that's how far south we were in the southern hemisphere in in in, in december you know that's their summer months and uh the sun it's perpetual daylight 
Uh, and anyway, so the captain stopped the ship and at midnight, uh, it was Christmas Eve. There was a lot of partying going on on board the ship with the crew and the, uh, my crew and uh, the scientists. Mm-hmm. But I went up to the top deck. I put on my thick jacket and I had my notebook. I kept notes of everything, whatever I worked on, whatever I ever did. I kept tons and tons of notes. Thank goodness for that. Because without all of that, you know, I would never have been able to have remembered the things in the degree of detail that I've been able to put into this book. And I went up to the deck and I was sitting on top of the, uh, of the, of the, the main deck of the ship. Uh, and the ship had a red hull. And scientific research ships and, uh, that work down in the ice always have a red hull so that they can be seen easily from the air if ever they you know, needed to be seen uh, for uh, emergency reasons. And I was sitting on, this, on, this, on the ship and other than the red hull, everything was white around me. And I was uh, making notes and I thought, how am I going to describe this in the narration uh, when I put the show together back in, in California? How do I describe what it's like being down there? And I said to myself, it's like being trapped in a white bubble. It's like being in a white world. <coughs> there is no color here at all. <coughs> and I suddenly realized when I wrote that, my goodness, that's exactly what this little old lady had foretold. I'm going to go to a world where there is no color. So she foresaw that as well. Sitting in a mud hut, in Africa, decades earlier, this woman had seen a picture of Antarctica and me being down there. You know, it was how this woman could could actually um, pinpoint the kinds of things that are going to happen in my life and describe, des- yeah, and describe things as they came to pass. You know, and I could go on and on and on. The I'll tell you about the uh, one of the mo- more interesting things was. This, this beast that she mentioned to me that will almost almost kill me was, and let me describe what that was all about. And the year was 1967, and um, I, was, I, I did a, a documentary in uh, a country called Mozambique, which sits to the left, the, the, the right-hand side of, 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 of South Africa. It was a Portuguese colony at that time. And uh, it was an amazing country because it was absolutely riddled with wildlife, with game. Um, and it was, a, it was a big area where, where hunters used to come from all over the world to go on hunting safaris. And 1967, a lot of your listeners may not recall this, but the older ones might. During the 50s, there was a craze around the world called the hula hoop. Everybody had a hula hoop. I mean, we all had hula hoops, mm-hmm. you know. From, from California to Cape Town, everybody had a hula hoop. All kids had hula hoops. And the, the guy who, who marketed the hula hoop and who manufactured them made a mint of money out of it. And the company that produced them was a company called Whammo Toys, based here in L.A. <laughs> and the man who ran the company uh, was a guy by the name of Arthur Millen. And so he'd made a fortune of money and he, he wanted to go on. A, and another thing that his company made, uh, marketed by the way uh, and made a ton of money from was the frisbee and so he decided to go to mozambique on safari on a hunting safari with two of his buddies from from la and i was contacted by a swedish producer and i I was offered the job to go and make a documentary about the safari now this was a super well kitted out well planned uh, extremely well organized big scale safari we're talking big time here big game hunting 
you know, where you have bearers carrying rifles and, you know, ammunition and there were tents and, you know, we had trucks and four-wheel drive vehicles and all kinds of things. Now, the reason I took the job was not because I was keen to make a film about hunting because I'm, I'm not a hunting type at all. In fact, I've never understood what mm-hmm. folks uh, see in the pleasure of shooting wild animals. So I wanted to find out what is it that drove people to do that? And I took the job. I said, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do that. Where, where's the fun and the sport in, in going out shooting the daylights out of, you know, innocent wild animals just doing what, minding their own business in the bush? What's the pleasure of killing them? So that's why I took the job. But these three guys who came out on the safari, they were the sweetest guys that I've met in a long, long time, especially uh, Arthur Millen. He went by the name of Spud. He was, he was just a, a, a lovely guy and his two buddies, one was a stockbroker. The other one was, um, the other one was, I think, an accountant, uh, here from LA. And they, but they came out with high powered rifles and, you know, telescopic sights and all kinds. They could have fought a war with the amount of weapons they brought. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they really could. Anyway, it, it was absolutely fascinating, but it was pretty brutal for me seeing, this endless hunting of wild animals. But anyway, I'm going to cut a long story short. One day it was the turn of one of these uh, white guys um, from here. I think it was the stockbroker. I won't mention any names, but it was his turn to shoot an elephant. And so the guy who actually ran this operation, uh, the head of the safari, was a white guy who spoke Portuguese because that was the language of Mozambique. And uh, so he was there and we started tracking a herd of elephants so that this guy could shoot his elephant. And, you know, by the, the, the laws of, of the hunting fraternity, you know, you don't shoot young ones, you shoot older ones, you shoot those who are, you know, probably, you know, seen better days. And so we eventually picked out a big old bull on the side of the herd. And the guy who ran the safari said to this, this hunter, he said, that's the, this is the one you've got to try and, that's, 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 that's the guy that you go for. That's the one that you should try and take down. But the, the herd kept moving away from us. And eventually we had to leave our vehicles. We tracked them on foot. We spent the night in the bush. I ran out of cigarettes. It was, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> you know. And anyway, um, the next day we managed to surround the herd. And um, so this, the hunter gets his rifle ready to shoot this old bull. And I positioned myself right behind him. So that in my shot would be him in the foreground with his rifle and in the far background would be this bull. And, you know, in my head, I thought this, this is going to be a, a pretty effective shot. You'll see him pull the trigger, the gun would fire and the elephant would drop in the background. By that ain't what happened because he was a, not a very good shot. And the minute he shot, <laughs> he missed. And the elephant stampeded in every direction. It was chaos. They ran in every single direction. There was just dust and trumpeting, you know, and and these, uh, the, the ground was shaking like an earthquake. And uh, when the dust had settled after like a minute or so, standing where the rare herd was, was one single elephant and she was a female, a cow. And the reason why she stayed there is because she was guarding her calf. There was a baby there. And she knew that her baby was in danger because she heard the gunshot. These elephants are pretty smart. Elephants are highly intelligent, sensitive yeah. animals. And she knew <clears throat> this guy was, you know, out to kill. And she thought her calf might be in danger. 
And when she saw him standing in front of me with the, in front of my camera with these rifles still smoking, she started to charge. And she came running up to him and in my frame, in my viewfinder. What I could see was this big elephant getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more terrifying until she filled my frame. And I thought, I'm dead. She is going to charge him, but she's not going to only hit him. You know, she's going to kill me too. I couldn't move. I had a very heavy camera. It's mm -hmm. a film camera. And there was a guy next to me who was my battery carrier. Those cameras were, ran off wet cell batteries, heavy things. And I, I couldn't move. And, you know, uh, then suddenly the hunter, the guy who missed, ran out of my shot. So it was just me. And this elephant couldn't stop because she was charging at, a, at, at quite a clip running towards me. And I knew I, I was a goner, you know. And then over my ear here, over my right-hand shoulder, I heard, bam! And uh, the, the white hunter who organized the safari, he shot her and got her right between her eyes. And she dropped maybe eight or 10 feet away from me and uh, she died. Mm -hmm. If he had not done that, that elephant would have charged right into me and would have killed me. Um, and it was only that night back at base camp where we were, you know, the martinis were flowing and the, the <laughs> you know, various things. And these guys were talking about what had happened that day. I went to sit because it was very unnerving for me and also very upsetting for me to see, have seen this cow shot dead you know this mother of this baby was for me a very disturbing experience anyway i was sitting in the on the on the on the edge of the, the crowd in the in the in the base camp in the bar area beautiful thatched roof uh, on, on, the, on a riverbank and i suddenly thought you could have been killed today by that elephant and it wasn't wouldn't have been her fault but it wouldn't have been your fault either it was of the fact that she was protecting her baby and you could have died today and then it suddenly hit me, oh, my word, this is the great beast that that woman had predicted will almost kill me. She foresaw this entire incident way back when, decades ago. Just another example of the kind of things that this woman had foretold, you know. It's extraordinary how so much of this played out. I'll talk briefly now about one of these other predictions that I mentioned to you earlier. You know, I said to you, she told me that um, I'm going to meet a man who is very, very close to the most evil man mm -hmm. ever. And I, I, I never figured out what that meant. Now we cut to the year, I think it was 1983 or 1984. I was doing a series of documentaries on the history of South African Airways, which was one of the world's oldest international airlines and a very fine airline in its time. And by the way, it's a, it's a subject of my next book, which comes out in a couple of weeks from now. Um, the history of that airline, because it's, inc it's incredible how aviation developed in the continent of Africa. There are no airfields, no weather forecasting, none of that stuff. And particularly in the 30s, you know, it was real pioneering stuff to, to start commercial flying over darkest Africa. There were no established routes or anything like that. And so while I was doing this documentary about the history of the airline, um, we discovered that in 1934, the airline had ordered a bunch of new airliners from a company in Germany, the Junkers Company. The Junkers Company were one of Europe's top airplane builders in the 30s. Uh, and they built uh, a fantastic airliner 
very similar to those folks who know anything about aviation here. There was a there was an airplane called the Ford Trimotor here in the States in, in the 30s, which had an engine in the nose and then an engine on either wing. And the Germans had a similar one made by the Junkers company. Um, and it was all metal, which was mm-hmm. like very, very new for those days. And so the airline ordered some of those airplanes. Now to fly them all the way from Germany down to Johannesburg in South Africa was a big, big deal. As I said, no emergency airfields, no airports, no weather forecasting services, none of the essentials that are part of international aviation today. You know, if you went down in the middle of a jungle, you're done, you know. So it was a big deal. And while we were researching this show, we learned that one of the pilots of on one of the delivery flights of one of these airplanes was still alive. He was 89 years old and he'd retired to a small town near Munich. And I said, we got to get him. We got to get him because I've got to interview him, put him in the in the movie. I want to hear about that delivery flight down Africa. It was a two or three week um, trip that they did flying down and to deliver this this new new airplane. And the the um, we we made contact with the German government, and the, the, we were given a, a contact in the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, in Bonn at the time. This is before East and West Germany combined, and so Bonn was the head of West Germany, and we were given a guy from the um, from the Foreign Office there who facilitated this interview. And so you know we uh, we, we 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 arranged to go and interview this guy in his little house, not far from Munich. And so uh, I've got my crew and we're in Germany. We're doing all sorts of uh, filming of, of uh, uh, you know, um, just scenic stuff as well. But the night before we were in Frankfurt, we had to drive down to Munich on the on those one, uh, one, wonderful autobahns of Germany. You know, no speed limits. You know, just you go and uh, incredible road system. And uh, the night before we went down to go and interview this man whose name was Hans Bauer, B-A-U-R. Uh, the guy from from the foreign office in the in the German government he pulls his chair up to me at the hotel where we were staying that night before we we did the interview and you know he spoke wonderful English and he was going to be my interpreter for this interview and he leans over his glass you know at about midnight after we'd had a few bottles of good Rhine wine and and he said to me how much do you really know about Hans Bar and I said you know well <clears throat> what is there to know? What I what I'm interested in is it is that delivery flight that he did in the 30s, and he said, yeah, but you know he was a member of the Luftwaffe during World War II, and I said that's fine. I'm sure he must have been. He had to be a pilot during the war. Uh, that's fine. Why is there a problem with that? He said, well, I prefer you not to ask him about that period because, well, let me be honest with you. He said. He leans over to me and he almost whispers to me and he said, Hans Bauer was the personal pilot of Adolf Hitler. When I heard that, I sobered up instantly, like instantly. It's not very often that one gets an opportunity to meet a guy like that. And I thought, oh my word, how am I going to deal with this? And I'm not allowed to ask him about that. And, but I, I agreed, okay, we'll only stick to the story that we were after, which was the delivery flight. And we go to his house, and his wife came to the door. This was his third wife, a very sweet, <clears throat> lovely lady. 
and uh, she invited us into the house. And eventually, this this guy, <clears throat> this old guy, arrives, and he's got a limp, and he's you know walking with a stick, and he speaks no English, only German. And uh, we, you know, we, we we shake hands, and when I shook hands with the guy, I suddenly, you know, you've heard the phrase many times, I'm sure, six degrees of separation, mm-hmm. you know. But this was like one degree of separation yeah. from the most evil guy who ever lived because he was Hitler's personal pilot. But not only that, they were friends and buddies from way back when they were young together. And in fact, when he married his first wife, Hitler gave him his uh, wedding party in Hitler's apartment in Munich. That's how close they were. Wow. And when I shook his hand, I thought, you are one hand taken away. One handshake away from Adolf Hitler himself. How many times did Hitler shake that hand? Anyway, I put all that aside. I wasn't going to deal with the war. I wasn't going to deal with the Holocaust. I wasn't going to deal with any of that stuff. We did the interview about the the delivery of the the airplane. The airplane was called the Junkers, Ju-52, a very fine machine. We do the interview, and he tells me about about the delivery flight. A long story. It's all in the in the in the book. And then when we finished, you know, I said to him uh, through the interpreter, I said, you know, Danke schön. Thank you very much. Very good interview. We're done. And he was kind of relieved that the interview was over. And then he says to me um, in, in German, I can, I can understand because I can speak Afrikaans. We were all taught Afrikaans in South Africa. So if you speak Afrikaans, which is a derivative of Dutch mm-hmm. and German, you can understand, you know, so I, I understood enough. He said to me, come with me. I want to show you something. And he got up on his wobbly, you know, wobbly and with his cane and he walks me over to the side of the living room and there's this big photograph. And in the photograph is, a, is him in his Luftwaffe uniform with Adolf Hitler standing in front of Hitler's personal airplane, which was exactly the same kind of plane, that airplane that we'd been talking about in the interview. And he points to himself, he says, this is me. And he points to the other guy and he said, you know who that is? And I said, jawohl, I know who that is, you know. And he said, do you want to know more about it? He asks me in German and I said, yes, please. The guy from the foreign office looked mortified. (laughs) You know, he didn't want me to go there. But but, But this old guy, Hans Bauer, he offered to tell me about his relationship with his Fuhrer, with, with, with Hitler. And he calls his wife to bring the photograph albums. And she brings a huge stack of leather-bound photograph albums. And for the next couple of hours, we were sitting in his living room, paging through these albums. And it's like looking inside the Third Reich. Everybody is there. Heinrich Himmler, Goebbels, you name them. All the, the, the members of the Nazi party, the leaders of the Third Reich, are in all these photographs with Adolf Hitler. And in a lot of the images, there is Hans Bauer. Because, you know, Hitler didn't trust anybody. He always knew that his life could have been in danger. He never trusted anybody, including those people close to him. Uh, But there was one confidant in his life that he always confided in and told this guy everything. And that was this guy, Hans Bauer. And so they they were tight. They were really tight. They were all buddies. They knew each other. And he told me, you know, about the, the tight relationship that existed between the two of them. And I'm seeing him in pictures with Adolf Hitler sitting at a dinner party with Mussolini. 
you know, from, from Italy. And it was amazing. And this, these photograph albums were like going into another world. And he was quite happy to share all this with me. And I felt privileged that he would do that, you know. And um, at the end of the day, I was sort of overwhelmed by the whole experience. And, you know, eventually I said to the crew, like, let's, let's wrap everything up. Let's, you know, let's get the cables out the way. Let's pack everything up. We're leaving in about, it must have been about six o'clock at night where we had two vehicles. And we drove away from his house. And he was standing outside his house with his wife. We'd had a lot of uh, good German wine and other stuff to drink. And they were very hospitable. And she had cookies and food and all kinds of stuff all afternoon flowing for us. And as we drove away, I looked out the rear window of the of the van. I was a passenger in the back seat, and there he was waving goodbye to us. You know, I suddenly thought, "Wow, this is what that woman meant all those years ago." It only struck me then. You will meet a man who was close, very, very close, to the most evil man who ever lived. I didn't. It didn't even cross my mind when I was talking to him, when I was sitting next to him, looking at his photograph albums. But that's what I just did. How did she know that? How could she possibly have foreseen that? That's how extraordinary that woman was. And her influence in my life has, you know, persisted ever since those days. Well, I think I've been yakking long enough about that, but she was so right and, and accurate in everything that she predicted. And I cover all of that, you know, in the book. And so the, the book really is to do with the fact that in 1994, 96, actually, uh, I was working on a series for the History Channel. I was working on a series called His, uh, Ancient Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And, and there were also <laughs> Mysteries of the Bible. I was supervising producer of a, of a series called Mysteries of the Bible, Ancient Mysteries with Leonard Nimoy. And while I was working on that terrific series um, here in LA, one day I suddenly, you know, looked down at my at my ankles and I my ankles are all swollen and my wife said to me you better go and see a doctor about that so I did and he said oh you you got you got problems we we need to find out what that is so he said you've either got a heart problem or you've got a kidney problem because your body is retaining water <clears throat> it's not getting rid of fluids you better go and see somebody and he he sent me to see a nephrologist a kidney specialist and I, I was diagnosed with this really traumatic chronic kidney condition and they said to me, you are seriously ill. And I thought, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. And that is how I met what, what took me back to Africa many, many times. Because although I had some of the best doctors in the world here in L.A., I also have a friend who lives in, in, a, in a place called Santa Barbara, which is just north of Los Angeles. It's uh, an hour up north along the coast. He's my age. He's also a white guy. And he also grew up in South Africa. And he's a general surgeon. And um, what, what he did was he wanted to study, because of his African background, he wanted to study the ways of the African shaman, the, way of the ways of the Sangoma. And so he was studying their, their methods of, 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 uh, of, uh, of, of conjuring up medications for people's illnesses uh, and so he f- found himself a teacher back in africa to teach him the stuff how do you find the leaves and the barks and the berries in the bush what do you do with them how do you dispense them because he comes from a medical background he wanted to know why that stuff worked and so he was doing a film and he said 
when I was diagnosed with my illness, he said to me, you know what, I'm going back to South Africa as part of my studies. Why don't you come with me? You can make a movie about uh, my, 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 my process of learning. And whilst we're there, you can, you can talk to some of these guys. Maybe they can help you. And I said, Dave, are you out of your mind? You are, you, you are a surgeon and you're telling me to see a witch doctor about my kidney illness? And he said, yep, that's exactly what I'm telling you to do. And so I went back to South Africa many, many times and met many of these Sangomas, and they have been absolutely remarkable. And I share a lot of those stories in the book. I mean, it's just been an amazing journey. Wow. <laughs> that, that, is, that is one hell of a story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard <clears throat> anything like that, ever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and by the way, I got lots of pictures in the book. There are photographs. Um, people can see uh, I, none of this is made up. It's all true. And I spent a lot of time with the tribes. By the way, in the 70s, uh, before I left South Africa, I did a series called The Tribal Identity, and I met a lot of, of other Sangomas from various tribes. And I have seen these, these people actually do exorcisms on people. Uh, I had an exorcism done on me as well after I was diagnosed with this illness, because I went to, I went with this friend of mine and we went to a country called, it's, they've changed the name today. It's called Eswatini. It used to be known as Swaziland. It's a mountain kingdom. It's ruled by a king and it's sandwiched between Mozambique and South Africa, beautiful part of the world. And uh, I actually went to see a very, very, very powerful Sangoma there who did what was known as a Femba. They call it a Femba. Femba is a Swazi word, and Swazi is a language very closely aligned to the Zulu language, part of the Anguni group of languages, and it means basically an exorcism, a clearing out mm -hmm. of dark energy, a clearing out of bad stuff. And this guy did this incredible um, 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 ritual on me that scared the daylights out of me while I was having it done. And, you know, I described that, that, that event um, because this man spoke no English. And the night I went to have this, this ritual done, uh, my friend Dave was with me, this guy from Santa Barbara. He was with me. And we had gone to this man's little, little compound, this, 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 this uh, Sangoma's compound, in the middle of nowhere, up at the top of the mountains. And uh, he arrived dressed in his regalia, skins, and beads and, uh, you know, um, all his Sangoma ritual artifacts that he wore. He arrived in this hut one night uh, to do this ritual on me. And there were women in the hut drumming. And the drumming was like almost an, 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 an anesthetic. It, it, it was putting me in another realm. The drumming was so incredible with this constant perpetual boom, 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 boom. There was a fire in the middle of the hut. This guy arrived wearing all these skins and beads and things, dropped down on all fours and started to breathe as though he had become an animal and walking on, on, on all fours as though like, like an animal. And he reminded me of Aina. Mm -hmm. and he came up to me and they'd made me strip right down to my underwear. I was wearing nothing but a pair of underbats. And he came up to me. And you know, I felt no embarrassment, by the way, even though I was surrounded by all these women and their drums and whatever else, and a ton of kids. There I was sitting in this hut with a little fire in the middle of the hut. And this man 
on his all fours, coming up to me, breathing deeply. And he came up to my body and he started to smell me. I was so scared. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what to do. And he started to smell me all the way up, all the way up to my torso. And when he got to the area where my left kidney was, he started to heave as though he wanted to vomit to bring up. And he did. And one of his assistants came running up and he smelt where my kidney was and he hurled this ghastly slime uh, into a barrel. And then he went around to the right-hand side of my body and he smelt the right. And when he got to the, where my right kidney was, he did exactly the same thing. He started, you know, and vomited into this barrel, this slimy, gooey stuff. It was straight out of a horror movie. And at the end of that, he stood up and he didn't speak English, but he folded his arms. This was all described to me later and interpreted to me later. What he told me was, he said, your ancestors are here tonight. I have spoken to your grandfather and I'd never met my grandfather because my grandfather died in Latvia. I'd never met the guy. He said, but your grandfather was with you tonight and he helped me to find out what is wrong with you. And I have taken the terminology he used was the bad stuff, not the illness, the bad stuff. I've taken the bad stuff out of your body. It is gone. I've taken it out. And that's, that's the stuff that he was vomiting into the barrel. And then he left. And did I understand any of this? Absolutely not. And, you know, on the way back to where we were staying uh, with Dave's teacher, you know, learning about the, 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 medicinal stuff that he was studying we were both absolutely astounded by what had happened that night because this man had pinpointed exactly where my illness was and he had cleansed me of the illness and in actual fact i absolutely don't believe i know that he helped me uh overcome this illness i i've had this illness now for 26 years it's chronic i'll never be able to get rid of it my kidneys are, are damaged but I'm kind of, you know, I'm in remission today. And I think that this guy had a lot to do with that. And, you know, I, I share in the book, my philosophy about all of this is that, you know, these guys don't go to universities. They don't go to medical school. They don't go to any of the institutions that we do in the West. They learn at the foot of, of a teacher. They sit at the foot of a, an older person for years learning this stuff. And, where does the knowledge come from? Where do there's no prescribed method? There's no nothing is written down. It's all passed down from generation to generation. And I think that what it what is it, what it's given me is a very healthy respect for cultures that I don't understand, and I don't understand how they know this stuff, but it is so. It really does exist. They are accessing something in the universe that we don't even begin to understand. And I think it opens up one's eyes and one's mind to the possibilities of what the world is really all about and how incredibly um, complex the things are in the universe, you know, that, that these things are possible. And it's just been a mind altering, life altering experience. Mm. <laughs> That's crazy. That must have been, I can't imagine laying there having some guy on the floor smelling you and then vomiting that stuff out and yeah. it actually helping. Yeah. I mean, and 
yeah, I, I wonder like, like, like what is the, what is it they know about the universe that we don't or feel or sense or are able to connect with? I, 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 you know, if I knew, you know, look, shamanism is not unique to Africa. The, right. The shamans of Peru are amazing. The, 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 I mean, right here in North America, you know, the Native Americans, I mm-hmm. mean, they, they, they have incredible powers and, and capabilities. And, and I've also met shamans in Brazil, mm-hmm. in the Amazon, uh, who, but that their methods are all different. The only people who use the bones, by the way, are, are the ones in Africa, because, you know, the bones is the method. It's, 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 it's the, it's the mechanism by which they contact the ancestral spirits for, for understanding and for teaching. And that's unique to Africa. But, but what is it that gives them that, that capability around the world? Who knows? I think all I've learned and all I, I absolutely do know this now, uh, without any hesitation, uh, I, I, I will say this. Even people may laugh at this, but I absolutely believe that there is some kind of a field, a grid, a knowledge system that exists inherently in the universe, certainly in this world. And, but I think it's, I think it's cosmic. I think it's everywhere. They're tapping into this. They are all tapping into the system of, of, of ancient knowledge and somehow drawing down from it. And I think that maybe we all have that capability. You know, what, what does one say? I've made films. I did a show years ago called Beyond Death, which was all about near-death experiences. Right. And uh, there were children who had, had near-death experiences and there were adults. And, you know, what is it all about? There is definitely more than what, you know, Western society recognizes in terms of what goes on in the world and in the universe and natural forces that, you know, we don't really fully understand. It's incredible. That is wild. <laughs> the whole story is just incredible. I can't believe that you met Hitler's pilot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man. So you know, I, I think the takeaway of it is be open-minded and be aware that even though you don't understand everything, you know, there's more to the way the universe works than we know. I mean, life on other planets, life in other dimensions, uh, the fact that what, that astral travel is possible, all of these things I am now know, even though I haven't done all of these things myself, I've met so many people who have talked about this. And by the way, I, I've actually photographed a UFO uh, uh, over Canada in that, in, when I was working with the National Film Board. So, you know, uh, extraterrestrial life, um, life on other realms, uh, the spirit world, all of this, is to be considered. We should make it, all of these things should be part of our toolbox of understanding or trying to come to grips with the way the world really works and yeah. the kind of universe in which we live. That's, that's what we learn. And that's what the book is all about. And I wanted to share that with folks because, you know, a lot of people, they're scared of death. They're scared of illness. They don't understand mm-hmm. what's going on. You know, things go bump in the night. Don't talk about it. I don't <laughs> want to hear about it. You know, no, uh, it's 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 okay. It's fine. You know, it's we don't understand it. That's why we're frightened of it. But we shouldn't be because right. it, it it is so. It does exist. Yeah, it's a part of our world. And, exactly. And I do think I, I agree. You know, the whole reason I had this podcast to begin with is to help try to open people's minds up. I don't want to tell people what to believe, but uh, I hope I can put enough 
uh, content out there to get people to ask questions. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. Question the reality, at least. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're doing a service by doing that because folks are – our society doesn't uh, encourage this, you know. It does not. I mean, you know, if, um, uh, none of this is taught to, 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 to in school. It's, it's frowned upon. You know, little, his little Mary says to, to, says to mommy one night, hey, mom, I can see granny sitting on that chair over there. And granny's been dead for years. You know, the first thing the mother will say, oh, it's your imagination. <laughs> Maybe it's not, you know. And don't shut, shut her off. Um, consider, or say, mm -hmm. describe her to me. What is she wearing, you know. Can you hear her? You know, don't just shut it off. And uh, we've got a lot to learn, too. Uh, you know, I think the kids are amazing, and we, we just stop them from from believing what actually is out there. Right. Yeah. Two things that you meant, like one, like like Granny, like one of my first paranormal, first probably the first paranormal experience I ever remember is I had a paper route, and I was driving across, riding my bike across this parking lot, and I look over and I saw my grandmother who had passed away quite a while ago. Just yeah. sort of, she wasn't even walking. She was just floating across the parking lot, and she looked over at me, and she just waved and smiled wow. and kind of vanished. And, yeah. I, and I told my parents, I was like, wow, you know, I, I saw grandma. And they're like, shh, don't say yeah. anything to your father. <laughs> don't no. Say no. don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing, too, that, that you mentioned is that you made the film, you know, with, with Leonard Nimoy. Mm. It was in search of. That got me into all this stuff as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That, that show just changed my life. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, look at how many people look at, uh, what's that, that, that very popular show, uh, ancient, uh, ancient mm -hmm. astronauts, I think. Um, I did a show many, many years ago before, before that series came about. It was called Ancient Encounters and it was part of the, uh, of a history channel series called Ancient Mysteries where we looked at, um, uh, descriptions of UFOs down through the ages, right down from ancient Egyptian times. And, you know, these things are for real. They absolutely do exist. And I don't believe that they, you know, maybe they're coming from another dimension. Maybe they're coming from another time. Maybe they're coming from another planet. And maybe they're coming from another realm that we don't even begin to understand, but they mm -hmm. do exist. And, you know, I, I, as I said to you, I photographed a UFO over Canada in, in over uh, Saskatchewan in the 60s. And, you know, this thing is as real as can be. I mean, it was a giant metal disc uh -huh. hovering over the, the plains of Saskatchewan. They're, they they exist. Let's not deny that, that all, any of this is possible. You know, are they little green men or are they infinitely wiser than ourselves or light years ahead of us? But it's certainly not just figments of our imagination. It's for real. It is. Absolutely. Wow. Man, this is great. I love talking to you. You're fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, all of this is in the book. So I think folks will find it. I had to share this with people because, you know, I talk to my to my kids and say, oh, Dad, we don't want to hear about that stuff again, you know. But wow. so <laughs> you know, it's, it's difficult. And I just wanted to share this because it's, it's, it, I think it opens people's minds. Absolutely. Uh, Where can people find you and find your book? Well, I do have a website, and it's my name, Lionel, like in Lionel Trains, L-I-O-N-E-L, -E and then my last name, which is F-R-I-E-D, like fried, and then B-E-R-G, so lionelfriedberg.com, 
is my website, and uh, they can actually read uh, a couple of chapters of the book on the website. Oh, nice. And I got a ton of photographs there, including a lot of things with shamans and uh, tribal stuff, and you know, and and a bunch of other things as well. Because I've made so many, uh, I've had an, I've been very blessed to have an amazing life. Yeah. And there's a lot of images there that I, I'd love, love, love to share with people. So the book is available now. Uh, they can go on my website and then order it from there. Or it's on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or any good bookstore uh, has the book. Okay. And it's called Forever in My Veins. And it's, it's out right now. Great. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your website in the notes of this episode so people can uh, hop on there and look at the free chapters and buy the book. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah, they can do that. And I think they'll find a lot of the images really fascinating as well because uh, i got a, a ton of photographs there. That's great. Awesome. Thanks for being on today. Well, thank you, Gary. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and sharing the story, you know, with you and with your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. I loved it. This is great. Hang on one second, and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.